Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for coming to, uh, to today's LWA Los Angeles Las Vegas section e town hall meeting. Uh, we have great speaker today. Uh, it's very exciting. So uh, you will have fun. So before that, we have a couple of logistics to go through. <clears throat> First of all, actually, all our LWA events are networking events. Just unfortunately, it's online. Uh, but you are welcome to chat with the speaker uh, in the chat room and uh, also fellow attendees. Uh, exchange your contact information or information just like in an in-person event. Uh, we'll be going, trying to go back to the uh, uh, in-person event or hybrid, uh, but because right now, most of the venue we work with uh, still have been hesitant to allow us to use their room. Uh, and uh, people are still watching for the new variants, the spread especially after July 4th, uh, seem to be some increase of the cases, uh, like the Delta variants, uh, but we're still closely watching. The second issue is about uh, certain uh, attendee mentioned they didn't have the Zoom link uh, while we have been sending out several times. Uh, so please uh, uh, check your spam or junk folder. If you realize they put it into the junk folder for our no email notice, try to change the setting or throw them out every time or let us know and uh, your alternative email address. And uh, we appreciate AWA headquarters for providing this platform uh, for us. And uh, this event is going to be recorded and posted after the, uh, and it will be posted after the uh, presentation. Uh, if you got disconnected somehow, please keep trying. It should be just temporary. Um, please use your name when you sign in on Zoom so people know who you are. Uh, Fellow attendee won't see you, but uh, if you start to type question or Q&A, people will uh, see your name. Uh, if you have any question for the speaker, we will enable you to speak out at the end of presentation, uh, or you can type in the Q&A box. And, uh, security and privacy has been very important, has been improved. Uh, please don't talk about any sensitive issues or personal information uh, during the Zoom session. Um, just a few words about this uh, exciting Los Angeles area. Uh, we were just chatting with the speaker today, <clears throat> Dr. Goodman. Uh, the Long Beach has been a very exciting area, uh, not only at the great convention center, but uh, many new space companies like the Launcher Space, uh, Relativity Space, and the more 3D also have a big headquarter in Long Beach as well. Uh, <clears throat> of course, you all know Boeing is everywhere. Uh, it's in El Segundo, but also have a place in, uh, near Long Beach. And then we have many uh, aerospace companies in this area, El Segundo, South Bay, and uh, also Northrop Grumman Aerospace Corporation, JPL, as in Pasadena, uh, doing great uh, Virgin Orbit, you know, uh, Virgin Galactic SpaceX. <clears throat> so we routinely have events uh, to keep everybody networking together and properly informed. Uh, after today's exciting talks, uh, next week we have excite, very exciting event for celebrating Apollo and the Vikings uh, landings on the moon and Mars. Uh, we have uh, speaker talking Michael Collins, the tribute to Michael Collins. We have speaker USC former astronaut talking about how to become an astronaut. Then we have speaker from uh, Europe. She's a professor in the inter international United Nations radiate, nuclear radiation safety expert. <clears throat> talking about how to protect astronauts in space flight. And uh, then we also have speaker from JPL talking about how to drive perseverance to over. Okay, uh, 
so this is the uh, talk I'm talking to for next week. And then we have networking event on July 20th to chat about the exciting June, uh, July, uh, many excitement. For example, the uh, <clears throat> Richard Branson going to space tomorrow and the Jeff Bezos on July 20th. Uh, so just, just a lot of activities and the benefit. And uh, if you are a member, we can do member spotlight for you. Uh, then you enjoy the other way engage. And uh, if you are a member, you immediately enjoy the daily launch, insider news, emails, and uh, Aerospace America. And uh, you get discount, great discount for attending AWA conferences. Uh, this AWA membership program, you can take a look and a great student to professional transition rates. Ed educator is free. And uh, if you are a member, we have different levels. You can advance on different levels. Uh, our section chair, Dr. Jeffrey Michelle, is a fellow and uh, the president of Aerospace Corporation, Mr. Steve <coughs> Izakowicz is a fellow as well. And uh, Ms. Queen Shotwell just got promoted to honorary fellow, the same status as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And uh, we also have Dr. Bill Gersenmeyer, uh, former NASA uh, human space flight with us. Uh, so just a, a couple of benefits, you know, awards uh, for members. And, uh, you know, uh, this is uh, to honor your contribution and uh, accomplishment. And uh, STEM outreach, uh, we have five major national forums. Uh, so uh, the, for the space one, you know, sand is a good to go and the many others. And uh, this will picture upper left is our section chair, Dr. Jeff Michelle from Raytheon. Apologize, <clears throat> he cannot meet with us today. And uh, this is event on May 1st. We have uh, Mimi on, the leader for the Ingenuity Mars helicopter, and uh, Dr. Jeff DeLong and uh, Mr. Aaron Stubura from JPL for the exciting Mars 2020 mission. Uh, just try to fast forward. Uh, we, we have uh, uh, this uh, exciting planetary defense talk on June 26th. Um, so today we are honored and very happy to have, uh, uh, to have Dr. Bill Goodman with us. He's the president and CEO of Goodman Technologies uh, and Gitano uh, LLC in the uh, defense aerospace and new space markets. Every April we have a new space conference and so we wish uh, Dr. Goodman can join us. Uh, and he's a PhD in material science engineering from UCLA. Um, <clears throat> he's an entrepreneur and a master uh, <clears throat> result. He's uh, the president of CEO of Five Year Old Goodman Technology LLC and the new startup G10 of uh, LLC in the, in the uh, industry, as just mentioned. Um, he's from UC UCLA. He has been working in <clears throat> the space defense aerospace in his entire career. He has more than 90 publications and his technology has grown on four different space missions. He has also more than 50 winning SBR, STBR grants, phase one, two, three, for companies he has worked for, and companies he has won, or for companies that he coaches. He was recipient of 2018 and 2017 New Mexico Small Business Association grants, and a graduate of the Small Business Administration 2019 Emerging Leaders uh, Streetwise MBA Certificate Program. Bill uh, later went went on to become the SBS 2020 Small Business Person of the Year for the state of New Mexico. I believe that's the trophy he is holding. 
uh, in the picture here. He's a fellow of the International Society of Arctic, Optics and uh, Photonics, SPI, SPIE. I happen to be a member of that society uh, many years ago. It's a great, very uh, renowned organization, uh, same, uh, almost like Yadavoy. And there's a partner in Vista Business Group, nationwide, and an aid and uh, investment group for the middle market. Furman Technology LLC is a new space company, new space company performing research and development of 3D uh, additive manufacturing and advanced material for the most demanding and extreme environments. GT Narrow LLC is a company that will manufacture them. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Leo Kutman. All right, I'm going to go to the screen share here and uh, share that one. And hopefully when I hit F5, we'll get a nice large version of it. Let's see. Is it, you, can you see it, Ken? Uh, yes. Thank you for the uh, fantastic introduction and uh, the invitation to uh, be the speaker today. Uh, it's quite an honor to speak to AIAA, uh, one of the largest chapters. Um, I did live in Los Angeles uh, for 20 years. Um, uh, this is gonna be a different talk than, uh, than, than uh, you all probably used to. Uh, I, I love animated uh, speakers. I love speakers with a, a story. Uh, I've loved, I love speakers that have been through a storm. And uh, I, the the introduction uh, that you that you might have seen uh, when you registered for the event uh, shows a little about my uh, son who was 13 at the at the time, and uh, you know he needed to have heart surgery, and, and then I got laid off, and and I decided to start a company. But uh, like the Star Wars movies, that wasn't the the beginning. Uh, and I'm actually going to take you all the way back to the, to the beginning. Um, I, I've heard it said that, that you're either sailing into a storm or you're in a storm or you're sailing out of a storm. And so, uh, you know, I, I like to, to look at my life as like a chapter book. There have been some different chapters and I'm going to share a, a few of those with you now and, and hopefully it will give you some uh, value uh, about the psychology uh, for success, uh, not only in leadership, but, but in, in life and, uh, and dealing with, with events uh, in life. Um, what I like about AIAA and, and the space community, we're all adventurers. Uh, it is the last uh, frontier, like the Star Trek movies. And uh, there, there are many, many great challenges associated with uh, space, uh, you know, getting there, uh, working and existing there. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a tremendously harsh uh, environment once you leave the magnetosphere. Uh, but, but even inside the magnetosphere at GEO or, or MEO or LEO, uh, the, the space effects environment is, is, is very severe. Uh, 
Well, at any rate, let me let me jump into this, and uh, let's see. Should be able to do that. Yes. Uh, so I'm going to start with chapter three. Chapter three is about starting the business. Uh, then I'm going to jump back in time to chapter one, and I've called that chapter the destruction. And then uh, chapter two will be the reconstruction, and it, it, it lasts for a while. And then in chapter four, uh, we'll actually show you results of a tactical and strategic uh, growth plan that, that uses uh, the skills involved here, and, uh, and I'll show you some of the technologies that uh, we created at, at Goodman Technology. So, uh, you know, uh, this uh, this uh, chapter on start your business is uh, is interesting. Uh, chapter one is going to be a, a heartbreaker for a lot of people, and I'm just going to warn you up front. So uh, you're going to see some trauma in there. Uh, but then the good news is we're going we're gonna to take you through that storm and, uh, and into clear sailing uh, with the reconstruction and then chapter four, the, the results. So starting up Goodman Technologies, that's uh, chapter three. So, so back in May of of 2016, uh, you know, if you had had a conversation with me and uh, you know conducted an interview, uh, something like that, uh, I, I might have told you some of the things here. Uh, you know, decades of experience in, in systems engineering, uh, designed and built hardware that uh, you know flew in space, uh, worked with system primes and, and the government. And uh, in, in, many, in, in many areas, uh, pioneered new materials and, and processes to, that were requirements driven uh, to, to meet the needs of, of a variety of programs of record. So uh, one of the programs of record that I've been uh, involved in uh, since the late 80s to early 90s was the space-based laser program. Uh, it's also been called the Reagan uh, Star Wars program. And uh, at the time I worked for a company that was called W.J. Schaefer uh, Associates. It later became uh, Schaefer Corporation. And uh, one of the things uh, that I did with a company that was then known as TRW before it became Northrop Grumman uh, in Redondo Beach, uh, was the development of the materials and processes associated with the lasers uh, for the space-based laser program. And uh, back in that time frame, uh, down at uh, Capistrano uh, test site down in San Clemente, uh, there was the Alpha-1 chemical laser. Uh, it was a hydrogen fluoride mid-wave IR laser. It was megawatt class. And the original mirrors in the system were all water-cooled uh, optics. And uh, the, the team that I worked with, uh, we created all the original technologies for uncooled optics. And these were 
uh, mirrors made with single crystal uh, silicon. And then they were coated with what were called very low absorption or VLA uh, coatings. And uh, I did everything from thermal structural analysis with uh, a software package, finite element analysis package uh, known as Cosworks today, but back then it was called Cosmos. And actually, when, when I got the first version, it was called uh, SuperSAP. And SuperSAP was uh, developed by a little company uh, in, in Santa Monica. And I was actually one of the beta test sites uh, for it as it uh, transitioned and became uh, Cosmos uh, M. So uh, I did thermal distortion analysis uh, on all of the mirrors in the beam train uh, for the space space laser program. Uh, but I also worked with a number of vendors to grow the world's largest ingots of single crystal silicon. So back in uh, 1995, that was actually the topic of my PhD research at uh, UCLA. And uh, if you had asked anybody in the semiconductor industry, you know, what's the largest diameter wafer you could make? Well, back then it was about eight inches, but uh, we, were, we were growing, we were making mirrors that were 17 uh, inches in diameter. So more than double the diameter. They were the world's largest uh, ingots of, of silicon. Well, after uh, a number of years, uh, I think it was around 2001 or two, the space-based laser program went away and uh, another program came along, the airborne laser program. And uh, I contributed uh, to, uh, to a number of areas. So uh, Lockheed Martin was in control of the beam train for airborne laser. And on the, the front of the, the, the Boeing, uh, 747 was the was the beam director and it had a, a large uh, contact lens shaped uh, window on the front of that and uh, inside of it was the telescope which was the which was the beam director and uh, it had a one and a half meter primary mirror and uh, the group that I managed worked with a with a company down south known as the laser power corporation at the time and uh, we developed the, the coding process for the uh, primary mirror of the beam director, uh, as well as a, uh, a, a much huskier version known as the range simulator uh, primary mirror. I, I also worked with another group that's owned by Northrop Grumman called Cynetics out in uh, Devons, Massachusetts. And I did the thermal structural design and analysis of the two deformable mirrors that were in the, the uh, beam train. One was called the focus offload deformable mirror. And the other one was, the, uh, was called the AC-BC. Uh, and uh, those, uh, those deformable mirrors uh, started out with a round mirror in a square box, but ended up with a round mirror in a, in a round box. Um, another uh, high-energy laser program back in the day was THEL, the Tactical High-Energy Laser System for the Army and uh, subsequently the Nautilus uh, program. 
And uh, I show a picture down there. I don't know if you guys can see the arrow, but uh, this is the, the window on the, on the beam director. And uh, the, the group I worked with at Schaefer, uh, we did extensive design and analysis uh, of that window to make sure that it could meet all the thermal, structural, and dynamic requirements, as well as transmission uh, through the window. So we were looking at things like optical uh, path difference. Um, then uh, there was a program for the Missile Defense Agency with the Air Force called the Space Tracking and Space Surveillance System. And uh, I made mirrors and, and telescopes along with uh, the coatings that, uh, that go on the mirrors. Uh, and uh, this was a, a very stressing set of requirements because the system's designed for low Earth orbit. You're going in and out of the sun eight times a day, so you have thermal gradients. Uh, because you're at LEO, you're in the Van Allen belt, uh, otherwise uh, known as the, the proton belt, and uh, high energy uh, protons can interact with the nuclei of materials and they can uh, generate radioactive isotopes and radioactive isotopes uh, decay, some decay fast and some decay over extremely long time spans. Uh, and, and one of the things you wanted to avoid was you know, having a, a decay where there was a gamma ray because gamma rays can interact with a pixel of a focal plane array and actually, you know, make it light up. Uh, you get the same effect if you were to take your iPhone or your Android and point it at the sun, you'll just get a big, you know, white spot uh, out of it. Um, so, so down here, you see, uh, I, I believe this one was Missy 6 and over here on the right, I think was Missy 8. Uh, so I had some silicon carbide uh, mirror coupons that flew on, on both of those to see how they would tolerate the space effects environment at uh, LEO. Uh, this telescope here is an all silicon carbide telescope and it has a mirror technology that I was the, the co-developer uh, and inventor of when I was at Schaefer is called SLIMS. It stood for silicon lightweight mirror systems. And uh, over here, you see one that was actually uh, made as a fast steering mirror substrate. And on the outside of this mirror, uh, you basically have a, a solid silicon shell and the inside was made of a, of a silicon foam. So it's very lightweight and stiff, kind of like the way uh, birds are designed. Um, Anyhow, uh, a few more uh, things here, some other telescopes. Uh, most recently, this is a design of our CubeSat. It's a proximity, proximity imaging CubeSat telescope or PICT picked uh, for short. And uh, this one here is actually one of the first ever built large aperture uh, common aperture systems. So uh, both uh, RF and uh, LaserCom on the same device. It was tested in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, back at the, the big uh, wooden trestle there and demonstrated uh, 
signal uh, separation. Uh, so anyhow, all these uh, cool materials and processes and, and systems and subsystems uh, couldn't have been done without the help of uh, A teams, multidisciplinary teams of scientists and, and engineers. You had to design, analyze, and, and, and build. Uh, I, I held had, had held multiple uh, management positions, uh, progressively more responsibilities and, uh, and, and things like that. And then uh, at the end of May, going into June, uh, life happened. And I'll tell you what happened in a moment, but not right now. All right. June 12th, everything's going along pretty good. Went on a on a, my first and last uh, hot air balloon ride because I, I live in Albuquerque and it's uh, known as a hot air balloon capital of the world. Uh, I had my three kids and my niece on there with us. As you can see, it, the balloons in the street in the middle of a neighborhood. Well, we crash landed. <laughs> And uh, you know what they say, this is what the penguins of Madagascar say, uh, any landing you walk away from is a good landing. And that's, uh, that's what the pilot had to say uh, that day. Then, uh, you know, less than a week later, uh, we have the big event, uh, my son Cameron. We were at uh, church and my son uh, Cameron, who was 13 at the time, he walks up to me and he says, dad, my heart's doing that, that thing now. And so I put my hand on his chest. And has anybody seen the movie uh, Aliens, where the alien is like trying to bust out of the, the person's uh, body? Well, that's what his heart was doing uh, in his chest. I thought it was literally going to break his, his ribs. Well, the following week, we took him to the only pediatric cardiologist in the entire state of New Mexico. There's only one. And uh, she says, uh, well, uh, I don't have a heart monitor to put him on. And, and we, we told him, well, you know, we're about to go to Costa Rica for a two-week stay, two, you know, family vacation. It's all paid for and everything. And uh, here's what the doctor said to us. So he said, well, it, it hasn't killed him yet, so you'll probably be okay. Well, we, we went to Costa Rica and we had an amazing time. Uh, this one, uh, this crocodile here, you can see the head on this crocodile is as big as this guy. Now this guy is called a Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy is not his name, it's the job description. And you can see that this Jimmy is up to his calves in mud and is about to hand feed uh, this uh, crocodile. Now this crocodile had a name uh, according to tour guides and that was Osama bin Laden. And uh, we all got to hold Osama's uh, tail. This was the enormous <laughs> reptile. Um, and here's a nice tree frog. Well, my, my son had one event while he was playing video games. He had to be lying down in bed and we made it back uh, from Costa Rica. And uh, at that time I was the vice president of a, of a San Diego company and I was accustomed to going 
from Albuquerque to San Diego twice a month to do my business meeting. And uh, I was informed on July 15th, that Friday, that, uh, that, that I was laid off, that uh, my, my business division that I was leading had been sold out. And uh, the, the buyer of the company hadn't been paying their bills and they couldn't afford to pay the, the overhead. So here I am with a kid that needs uh, heart surgery and um, I'm laid off from, from my job. Well, I, I tell you what I did that same day before I even left the parking lot, I was on the phone to a CEO and we had a, a very short discussion. And Saturday we had day one of the interview and Sunday we had day two of the interview. And, uh, and, and an amazing thing uh, happened. He, he asked me a question. He says, well, we've, we've got these engineers that need coverage, very specific type of engineer. And what would you do? And I said, well, there's a, there's a guy I'd like to hire who has a bunch of RF. And he cut me off right there. And he said, no, we only have the resources to, to hire one people. You know, you'll have to do this all on your own. And uh, and so uh, a little voice in my head right then said, Bill, start your business. And it literally, that's what it said, Bill, start your business. So the next day was a Monday. I started to, to set up to do that. I got help from the Procurement Technical Analysis Center, uh, which every state has. It's federally funded. They help small businesses to do work with the government. And on July 19th, I... I had set up uh, Goodman uh, Technologies. Now, uh, you know, having heard that story, you know, you got a kid that needs heart surgery and you're, and you're laid off, you know, uh, I could have gone out and found a job, but I listened to the little voice. Now, how did that happen? Why, why did I listen to that little voice? Okay. And so, uh, this is why this was uh, not chapter one and why I have to go back and tell you about chapter one. And uh, uh, there's, there's a, you'll be disturbed by this. Uh, I'm just gonna set it out there and warn you, but uh, you know, I believe that everybody has their story. This is my story and I gotta tell you and you'll see how it ties in uh, with the psychology of success and how I get to uh, run Goodman Technologies. All right, chapter one, I call it the destruction. <laughs> You'll see why in a minute. So it was May 5th, it was 1992. And uh, on my to-do list that day, I had one thing planned. And I was supposed to go down to UCLA and discuss the results of my master's thesis, which had to do with extruding uh, metals and uh, mechanical and physical uh, metallurgy. Well, uh, God had other plans that day. And uh, before I was able to uh, go down to, to UCLA, uh, my wife at the time informed me that her water broke and that we needed to go to the hospital. So we, we drove over to Thousand Oaks uh, Hospital and I'd say about 90 minutes uh, later, uh, 
I had my first born male heir, my first son. I was just absolutely delighted, so excited. Uh, it was amazing. And so, uh, you know, got to, got to hold him. And then, uh, you know, we noticed that he was starting to turn a little, a little purple. And so the, the nurse takes him over to a table and she's working on him and she brings out a little bulb and syringe and puts it into his, his mouth. And, uh, you know, she says, we're, we're just going to help him breathe, get a little oxygen going. And, uh, and suddenly I saw that nurse go pale. And uh, she said, uh, he's... He's not breathing well, and uh, you know it, it appears that uh, that uh, the lung uh, may have been damaged, and so uh, they they rush him to uh, emergency. This hospital didn't have a, a neonatology section, uh, and so my wife and I don't know what's going on, but they they come back. With my with my son explain what happened. So now he has a, a hole in his chest, and uh, it was to help him breathe because uh, the lungs had been punctured. And they they said, uh, Mr. And Mrs. Goodman, uh, you know we don't have the resources at this hospital uh, for your son, but uh, what what he needs is. Uh, is critical care, uh, neonatology, uh, but chances are he's going to die uh, on the way to the hospital in the ambulance. And they, they, they asked me a question. They said, uh, what do you want to do? And, uh, and I decided, uh, I had this thought, I said, well, it, it looks like this is just a short-term contract. And, uh, so uh, uh, I'd, I'd like him to stay with us. And uh, so at, at that point, they, they handed me my son, uh, Brandon, and, uh, and I was holding him and he was still hooked up to the heart monitor. And uh, I don't know how long I, I held him, but, uh, but what I do remember is seeing the, the monitor and, and the heartbeat just flat screen and uh, the alarm that went off when it went flat screen. So here's, uh, here's what I've come to, to learn happened that day. Um, and, uh, and I've got to tell you more of the story, but uh, you know, I went from a state of other elation to a state of utter devastation uh, in a period of less than, than four hours. And uh, it was kind of a, a shock to my neurosystem. So uh, at any rate, after my wife had been sedated uh, and I had made all the calls to the family members, uh, I called a good friend of mine down at UCLA. He was a guy that's on my PhD committee guy named Dr. Fred Hawthorne in the, in the chemistry department. And uh, Fred and I had become friends. Uh, I, I asked him uh, to be on my PhD uh, committee. 
Uh, Fred is in the National Academy of Sciences. He, he went to the White House. He got the, the, the highest uh, level of award from the United States for his work in chemistry. And uh, I believe he's been nominated for Nobel Prize about four times. And uh, he, he worked with Werner von Braun when he was a, uh, a young uh, chemist uh, in Alabama. And uh, Fred pioneered the uh, chemistry of boron hydrides, uh, which is used as rocket propellant uh, fuel. Uh, anyhow, brilliant, brilliant man, one of the most humble uh, I've ever met uh, with 100% with uh, certainty. And Fred said, well, what did you have planned the rest of the day? And I said, well, I'm supposed to come down and do my master's thesis presentation at UCLA. And he says, uh, when you come down, uh, I'll meet you there. I'll sit in the middle of the hall. You just go through your slides. You look at me the, the, the whole time. Just focus on me. You'll get through it. And then, uh, you know, you can go back and, and take care of the next thing on the list. And so uh, that's what I did. I went through the slides and people asked questions. They answered the questions that they applauded. And, uh, you know, and, uh, I met with Fred again and I went back home. Uh, I called uh, UCLA. I called uh, the professor. It was, it was midterm week or finals week. Um, I had one the next day. And uh, you know what they said? They said, uh, sorry, you're gonna have to come down uh, uh, and, and take your exam. And so uh, I, I actually went down the next day and uh, took uh, uh, the class that was on uh, fatigue uh, with George Sines, who has an equation named after him. And I was asked to sit at the front of the room facing the classroom. I don't know why, I think they asked why. I just kind of did what I was told. And uh, I still had to study for other exams through that week and next week. Uh, that, uh, that afternoon, I had to go out to, to Burbank, to Forest Lawn. I had to pick out a casket for an infant, uh, you know, burial site, uh, make arrangements for the funeral. It, it was just really, really heavy. Now, uh, anyhow, time passed, uh, four years later, my, my ex-wife never really recovered at all, uh, from the event. And, uh, you know, we, we, we ended up getting a divorce and, uh, I fell into a, uh, a depression and, uh, after, after feeling like this for quite a while, I finally went to see a doctor, uh, a regular doctor, and, uh, and he told me I was depressed and he gave me a medication for it. Well, uh, I, I'll tell you that time went by and I got worse and worse and, uh, and worse. And, uh, you know, I just didn't, I just didn't know. I just, I just had an emptiness. And I'll tell you what, every May 5th or several weeks prior to it, 
I started to get really anxious, really agitated, um, short-tempered, uh, bad sleep, waking up in the middle of the night, you know, loss of appetite, and and all these uh, all these kinds of things. And so that's what takes us to the next chapter, chapter two. And uh, this one is called the reconstruction. And, and I'll tell you, this, this was rebuilding Bill Goodman. Uh, and, it, and it was amazing. It started with one question, one decision, and then a lot of action. Okay, and I'm gonna get back to that little recipe there, a decision, a question, and some actions. And, and I'll tell you more about, about that. So on July 5th of 2010, it was a typical day after 4th of July. And, and I had a thought. And, and the thought was this, it was, a, it was this question, what if the doctor was wrong? What if I didn't really have depression? And, and the reason this question came up was, I was thinking back at the fireworks show and I'm watching uh, my, my new crop of kids and uh, all those random having a great time. And I was like, wow, I used to be such a happy-go-lucky, you know, extroverted person. What, what's happened? And, uh, you know, so I said, what if the doctor was wrong? And then uh, another thing popped in my head. I have this, I have this thing about things popping in my head. They pop in all the time. Sometimes they pop in when I'm sleeping and they're, they're, they're a great idea or invention, or they're uh, somebody that I needed to make a phone call to or an email that I, I forgot to do. It, it's just the way my uh, particular set of gray matter uh, works, but but I remembered something that uh, a very very good friend of mine, uh, who's actually my coach, uh, had said, and he said, "Bill, everything in life is meaningless until you assign a meaning to it." And then uh, a, another thing that that he always said was. Uh, you know, what if it, everything in life happened for you, happened to make your life better instead of happening it to you? And uh, what, it, what he was pointing out was uh, a mentality that's called the victim uh, mentality, a victim of, of life. And uh, you know, where did he learn that from? Well, my friend Bob was a uh, personal bodyguard for world famous Tony Robbins uh, for 12 years. And then for an additional four years, uh, Bob was a training coach for, for other coaches. And uh, he, was, he, was very, he was quite good at this. And in fact, Bob has survived 267 cancer surgeries and uh, just keeps on ticking. He has more uh, lives than a, than a cat. Uh, but, but for me, getting back to me, uh, at that time, I decided that, you know what? I, I, I'm not going to let this thing beat me, whatever it is. 
and I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to become the bill that I used to be. The, the positive, the energetic, the exciting, the fun, the passionate uh, bill. And I made that decision and I, and I took action. Now, from here on, I'm going to share a number of things that actually tie into the topic. I had to take you through, you know, how did I get the mindset that allowed me to start a business when your kid may die and needs heart surgery? Okay. So I, I'll tell you that I've done thousands of hours of study on uh, the topic of coaching. Uh, I've gotten uh, certified by the Integrated Wellness Academy in Los Angeles. I've looked at numerous videos of all kinds of positive speakers. I've, I've read dozens of books. I did, I, I did everything that was needed to, to become a master uh, coach myself. And uh, I, I, have a, I have another website outside of Goodman Technologies it's called drbillabq.com. And I have a blog there that I do almost daily. It's called the No Failure Zone. So uh, I, I teach people how to, how to rebuild their psychologies uh, so that they can be more effective in whatever it is they're doing. Uh, I've, I've been the coach for a couple of CEOs in the, in the space business. And uh, they've, they've all gone on to do uh, really uh, uh, amazing things. Uh, so let me share a, a couple of things with you. And then I'll get back to talking about technology, because I know that's what you all came here to, to hear about. So uh, the human brain is really an amazing thing. It can process 400 billion bits per second. The neurons fire at 200 hertz. That means uh, about three and a half times the speed that the lights are flickering in whatever room you're at because it's 60 Hertz alternating current. It might be a little different in Europe so or, or outside the United States. Uh, it can do 10 quadrillion calculations in a second. And to keep this thing alive, there are more than 400 miles of capillaries in the brain. Now, here's the amazing thing about the brain. It wasn't designed to make you happy. It was designed to keep you alive. And that's the whole purpose of the subconscious mind is to look out for you and, uh, and protect you. Now, I'm going to teach you about patterns. The brain's all about patterns. It's always looking for them. It always responds in patterns. So uh, nobody may have told you this before, but I'm going to tell it to you. Happy, sad, mad, glad, anything else you feel, they're all patterns. You aren't happy, you're doing happy, okay? You decide if you wanna be happy or not, and you can always change the way you're feeling right now, and I'm gonna teach you about nine different ways you can do that, okay? Um, here's the audience participation part. And uh, this is cool because you can do this in Zoom. I'm gonna, we're gonna do a little test here and it's a time test, okay? I'm gonna give you 10 seconds to execute a task, okay? And my expectation, you're all professionals and experts in the field and, 
and I want you to do the best possible job you can do at this because I'm going to test your memory. Okay. And so with that, here's what I want you to do. You're going to do this for 10 seconds. You're going to take a look around the room that you're in right now or the location where you're at. And I want you to look for everything that's the color brown. Ready, set, go. Look for brown, 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 look for brown. Now close your eyes. Now, tell me everything you saw that was green. And I know a lot of you are going, you're just smiling right now because it's like, you can't think of a single thing that you saw that was green. Well, I'll tell you what I did there. I, I locked your brain in. I put you under pressure. I told you you had to be successful and to achieve something. And I had you focus on things that were brown. Okay, that's the look for test. Now, here's the thing in life. You know, a lot of people will look around and all they'll see is brown, uh, AKA crap. Okay, they'll see the crappy things in life uh, and they'll miss out on all the other stuff because that's what they're focused on, okay? And where your focus goes, that's where your energy is going to, to flow. If you focus on things that disturb you and bother you and make you upset, well, you're not gonna be very happy or very comfortable. So I suggest you find something else to focus on, uh, something to be grateful for is always a good thing to do. You can't feel many things if you're feeling gratitude. Now, our brains also respond uh, with patterns. And, uh, you know, one of the classic ones is our fight or flight response. We have a structure in the brain called the amygdala. Uh, when something uh, frightens us or uh, disturbs us, worries us, uh, it releases a neurotransmitter called CRM that travels down your spine at the rate of 200 hertz to your adrenal glands and it releases adrenaline and cortisol. The adrenaline jacks up your heart rate, jacks up your breathing, constricts your arteries, and the cortisol dumps blood sugar into your bloodstream. And so the combination of high pressure, oxygenated blood with sugar uh, is fuel for your flight or flight response. Uh, here's another thing about the brain, it always wants to be right. And here, here's my proof that's true. Every morning I look in the mirror and I say, wow, what a good looking guy you are, Bill. And, uh, and as you could see, that's, that, that's not true. So, uh, the, the brain always lies and always wants to be right. Now, here's the cool thing about patterns. Patterns can be interrupted. Uh, you can change your physiology. You can change your biochemistry. I can eat chocolate. I can drink coffee. Some people might want to, uh, you know, have a beer, a glass of wine. All those things are going to change your biochemistry. You can change your structure. What do I mean by that? Has, has anybody ever seen a depressed person before? Maybe one that had to be hospitalized or whatnot. Typically, they're, you know, their shoulders are hunched, they're looking at their feet. They may be in a 
you know, in the fetal position in, in a ball, they don't make eye contact, um, that's structure. And then there's movement. So you could see I'm a very animated speaker, but if I just talk to you in a very slow and boring and dull voice, that might change the way you feel about the speaker. But I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm going back to animated though. Uh, then there's language that, you know, I told you the brain's a liar, but it's also always asking questions. You know, what would happen if, what if I do that? Um, is this gonna hurt me? Is this good for me? And that's all it ever does is asking questions. Now you gotta be careful with the questions you ask yourself because the brain also wants to kind of manipulate things to always be right and, you know, if you tell yourself today's going to be a crappy day, well, guess what? Your brain's going to find a hundred different ways to make it a crappy day for you. Okay. So I always tell myself, I'm going to have an awesome day. My brain's always looking to how awesome can it be? And then there's things like TV, transformational vocabulary. Uh, you want to you want to use a softer language. My my, my wife was uh, talking about contractors and asking about one. She's saying, "Well, is it, is guy going to charge me a lot? Is he going to rape me?" And I said, "Honey, you might want to consider a, a different word. How about a word like exploit? Or some people like to say, "I'm furious. I'm angry. I'm really pissed off." How about using the word peeved? I'm really peeved about that and do it with a smile and see how you don't go from a scale of one to 10 in intensity, maybe you only go to, to three, it, it really helps. Uh, and then there's values and rules and, and beliefs about things. Um, you know, if you value something, it means that you expect that it's gonna make you feel uh, a certain way. And then there are rules. And, you know, when I put expectations on my kids that, you know, you need to clean up your, your room, uh, if you don't clean up your room, I, I know that I'm going to be upset about that. I'm going to be peeved about that. And so, uh, you know, we have to watch the rules that we make. So now with that, I'm going to talk to you about states or states of emotion. Uh, these are things like, uh, you know, we've all gotten to a scary movie, right? You knew when you went into the theater that it was going to be a movie, that it was all just imaginary. But a scene comes up where, where the guy jumps out with a chainsaw and, and, uh, and you get frightened, okay? It, it shows that your brain can't tell what's fact from reality. Uh, another way you can change your state you can, you can go for run, then you're gonna generate endorphins. Or if you eat chocolate, your body will do some oxytocin. Uh, likewise, uh, drinking coffee, uh, that's a stimulant that changes your body chemistry and also changes the way you feel. Um, your states can alter your physiology. You know, when, when you see an angry person, you can tell just by looking at them, their face is really red, jaw is clenched, uh, we were discussing depressed person. Um, and then the other thing to know about states or states of emotion, they're synonymous with your feelings. Anytime you're feeling 
something, like I said, you're not happy, glad, sad, or mad, you're doing them. It's you've altered your biochemistry to feel the things that are synonymous with the emotion, which is just the label that we put on things. Important thing about feelings, they're not facts. And therefore, they're neither right or wrong. Everybody's feelings about different things are, are going to be, you know, everybody's entitled to their own feeling about things. They're, they're neither right or wrong. But in coaching, we talk about they're either empowering or disempowering. Now, here's the, the number one tool of the enemy, the most disempowering state to any human being on the planet, and that's fear. There, I, I like fear as an acronym. Uh, forget everything's all right, or uh, false evidence appears real, or uh, the F-bomb followed by uh, everything and uh, run. I'm not going to soil your ears with, with profanity uh, today. Maybe another day, but not today. Um, but what I learned after these thousands and thousands and thousands of hours was that I was never depressed. I had been misdiagnosed. And what I really had was PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, joy. Well, uh, I, I, I'm here to tell you today that I've overcome that. The date, May 5th, uh, is not disturbing to me because it was a pattern that I've replaced. And I, I've overcome this thing. And, uh, you know, one of the signs I like to put out for people is, you know, please do not feed the fears. The thing about fears is they're all imaginary. They all take place in the future. Fear is really just two things. It's a feeling like you're not going to get what you want, or it's a feeling like you're going to lose what you have. And it's all really just made up in your, in your mind. And so the, the, the moral of that little story is you want to stay focused and stay in the present. And what you want to be able to do is to replace fear at any time. And the one thing that I know that works 100% of the time, and it, it replaces other things too, uh, worry, anger, uh, depression, is by feeling grateful. We'll see that on the wrap-up slide. So let's talk about uh, that. So gratitude destroys fear and anger. That's a key lesson. Uh, once I had uh, conquered these things, you know, getting back to the, the business, I told you I, I had a question, I made a decision, and I took some action. One of the first things I did for the business was to create a tactical, uh, and tactical I define as a zero to 18 month time frame, and then a strategic, which I define as 18 to 60, six, zero months to grow the business. Uh, I built the website. I started to coach people to get some cash flow in uh, while I was writing uh, technical proposals. And that brings us to, to chapter four. And uh, the timing is working out great because I'm only going to talk about another 10 minutes, but I've got to show you in chapter four the results of the tactical and strategic growth plans for Goodman Technologies. So 
uh, in, in late 2016 and early 2017, I started writing proposals. In uh, June of 2017, we won our first uh, SBIR from NASA. A month later, we won our first uh, contract from the Army. And uh, for, for NASA, it was on 3D printing and additive manufacturing of silicon carbide large optics, so traceable to future observatories uh, for NASA. So the large infrared uh, telescope of the future, the one that would replace the James Webb Space Telescope is, is now known as the Origins uh, Space Telescope. In June of 2018, I converted the NASA phase one in a competitive down selection to a NASA phase two project, uh, which is since completed. Uh, for the Army, we also had a competitive down uh, select. And for the Army, uh, we were doing 3D printing and additive manufacturing of ceramic body armor uh, for soldiers. And uh, we got that phase two in September of 2018. And we got a subsequent or a sequential uh, phase two award from the Army in September of 2020. And that's where we're going to make a mobile armor production and armor firing system uh, that will custom make body armor uh, in the field at the point of need at a forward operating base. Uh, May 2018, we got our first award from the United States Air Force. And this is for uh, survival nanocomposites for aeroshells. So uh, aeroshells have to uh, survive the extremes of hypersonic flight, uh, but they also have to survive uh, weapons effects. And uh, we actually delivered and tested material in phase one. The material was designed from the periodic table elements up using a uh, analysis procedure that I had uh, developed, uh, you know, about a, a decade earlier called uh, Red Hard by Design. And uh, we won a, uh, our, our Air Force uh, phase two. Uh, we won a, our first uh, contract from the Missile Defense Agency in June 2018. In July 2018, we got another NASA Phase 1, which a year later converted over to a NASA Phase 2. And it's for an additively manufactured LaserCom telescope. So uh, this is making the optics and the structures, even the nuts and bolts, out of uh, special grades of silicon carbide. Uh, in 2019, in May, uh, Office of Secretary of Defense, we did some work for them. Uh, in May of 2020, we won a Navy uh, Phase One project. Uh, there were four other companies that were competing. Out of, out of the five companies, we were the only one to get a Phase Two uh, invitation to propose. And in April of 2021, we received our phase one option to continue our pioneering work in high temperature uh, nanocomposites would improve the orthogonal properties. And what that means is most composites like to unzip or delaminate uh, 
Uh, we've made them tougher, stronger, more thermally conductive. They, they hold together uh, a lot better, double digit performance improvements. And we've demonstrated that in five matrix systems to date. So epoxies, bismuth image, poly image, and uh, ceramic matrix uh, composites as well. Um, in August 2020, we got a NASA phase one for 3D AM thermal protection systems. And we hope to do some ARCJEC testing at Ames Research Center uh, in September. And then uh, the proximity imaging CubeSat telescope that I showed you a picture of that, that had also uh, started then. So here are the uh, processes and, and uh, procedures that, that we've created at, at Goodman. So uh, direct ink writing, uh, otherwise known as robocasting for ceramics and other types of custom engineered nano paste. Uh, we do additive manufacturing. We're able to seamlessly join smaller structures to make more complex monolithic 3D structures. We took a, we took a mirror, a parabolic mirror, and uh, we made it eight pieces, four off-axis parabolic face sheets with backing structures. And we joined them all together to, to make a monolith. I'll show you a picture in a minute, but not right now. Uh, we developed our own process called the Z process, which is uh, patent pending. And this works for our engineered nano ceramics and uh, nano ceramic nano paste. Um, we've done a little bit of work with uh, nano metallics and nano ceramic alloys. We have uh, something that's uh, for high temperature that we believe is uh, nicely super plastic. Uh, we do molding. We do all manner of composites uh, manufacturing. Uh, so these are continuous fiber or fabric uh, layups. And then uh, the nice thing is uh, we've got another A team uh, present here. So we do all kinds of design analysis and modeling, thermal, structural, dy dynamics, electromagnetic, and, uh, and also radiation modeling. So you can take these new materials, you can model them, and then you can build things out of them. And here are some of the things that, that we've made. So uh, top left corner, uh, these were mirror substrates. Originally, these little ones here, 30 millimeters on the side. We, we then made them in 60 millimeter on the side, took four of those, joined them together to make 120 millimeter squares with light weighting. Uh, we've made uh, worn trusses. Uh, we've even made coarse and fine threaded nuts and bolts. This one's very impressive. It has 80 threads per inch, and this is made out of silicon carbide. You can make uh, reaction control thrusters out of it. We made a continuous fiber ceramic nano composite. This is uh, pre preg for six sick. Uh, this is uh, allows us to make extraordinary things for very high temperature. Uh, here are some three D printed optics. Uh, here's an off axis parabola, and here's one with a very fast F number or, or deep dish, uh, if you will. We have some that are super dimensionally stable by 
uh, nanocompositing with carbon nanotubes. Uh, here's results of testing of uh, armor at the Army Research uh, Laboratory. And here's uh, some shielding uh, that we've made. And down here on the bottom left, you can see that the uh, 3D AM silicon carbide polishes up uh, very nicely. Uh, here, here we are showing a very high temperature uh, demonstration material. And here's some of our uh, work in nanoforested uh, composites. And uh, here's our customers. And, and all this, uh, I've, I've invested most of the money, not in my salary, but in paying the lawyers for intellectual uh, property and paying the accountants uh, for all the taxes and bookkeeping and all the other thing one needs to, uh, to run a company. Uh, some of our processes are entirely suitable for in-space manufacturing. And we've talked with some big companies uh, about doing that. So here's an example of a deployable trust for NASA. And uh, these are all little worn trusses. You put enough worn trusses together with a dimensionally stable hinge that's also made of the same silicon carbide. And you'll have a very lightweight, stiff, deployable uh, truss structure for a satellite system. Uh, here's the CAD rendition uh, for our laser telescope, LaserCom telescope. And so you can see again, we've, we've got the trusses, we've got the mirrors, we got the bolts. So theoretically, we should be able to, to make all the pieces and bolt it all together and inexpensively and rapidly uh, produce these. Um, here's our material properties, coefficient of thermal expansion from deep cryo out to temperatures that you see at Leo. This uh, purple curve is our measured result. You can see it's a little different from other silicon carbides. doesn't have all the curvature in it. It's, uh, highly uh, linear. And uh, in this box, this box corresponds to minus 20 to 50 degrees C, uh, which is your Leo environment. And our uh, instantaneous CT is about 2.35 parts per million per degree K uh, in that region. So it's, it's very, very good. Um, and this is our, our latest achievement for NASA. This is a 30 centimeter off axis parabola. And uh, this is the radius of curvature, 350 millimeters. It's uh, for this telescope over here. And this was made in two pieces and joined together to, to make a, a monolith. And so again, we could join pieces of this size to pieces to other pieces and make ever uh, larger things. And uh, now we, we have uh, some things that are good for hypersonics and uh, they survive radiation effects. Uh, they, they've been tested. We call this our GT nano shielding. It'd be good for data centers. Uh, it'd be good for, for, for making structures to protect processors in space from the radiation environment. Uh, so, and it's lightweight and dimensionally stable. So the same thing that you need for shielding also makes your structure 
and the structure doesn't change its shape as you go in and out of the sunlight. So uh, it's a it's another very uh, fun technology that that we've created. And uh, I'm about two minutes over my hour, but the good news is I am on the last slide. <laughs> so. Uh, to, to recap, in, in 2019, uh, I did the Small Business Administration's Emerging Leaders Street YMBA Certificate Program to learn how to become and do all the things that a CEO needs to do. Uh, my classmates uh, found me very uh, entertaining and engaging and, uh, and helpful, so they voted me to be the class spokesperson for the graduation ceremony. The attrition rate in the program was 50%. This was not easy. So imagine running a business full-time and going to school to do this. And there was coursework and reading and there was coursework outside of class. Um, and our group was called the Alphas. I had three women CEOs, which gave me a tremendous perspective on a lot of aspects of the business that I never uh, would have gotten if it weren't for the other alphas. And out of the various groups that were in our class, uh, the alphas were the only ones that remained 100% intact. There was no attrition in our group. The following year, I was supposed to go to Washington, D.C. to get that award. I got it in the mail, I think, by Amazon Prime. Uh, but I, I was the SBA Small Business Person of the Year for New Mexico. And in, in March of 2020, when a lot of companies were going out of business, I chose to start another business, GT Nano. And as mentioned before, GT Nano will take the IP created at Goodman Technologies and it will manufacture that. So uh, this year uh, through 2022, uh, we've exited stealth mode. Uh, we've secured our IP and we're beginning to raise capital to build that state-of-the-art manufacturing facility for nanoceramics and nanocomposites. Now, I promised you I would give you some takeaways on success for leadership, but success in life as well. And uh, the, the number one step is you have to define with clarity and certainty what it is that you must have Okay, not what you could have or not what you should have or not what you'd like to have. It's what you must have. And you write that down, uh, whatever that goal, that target, that objective, that result is that you want. And you put it where you can see it every day. Put it on your computer screen, on a sticky note. Put it on your bathroom mirror, wherever you're going to see it, because you want your subconscious mind to focus on connecting the dots holistically to get to the objective. Then you got to take action. So the, the, the guy who took action uh, that I like to remind people of is Thomas Edison, the incandescent light bulb. And what Tom said was uh, he was interviewed once by a reporter. Reporter said, why, why did you you know try to do the light bulb so many times, uh, you know, failing so many times? And, and Edison looked at him with a strange look and he said, well, I never failed. I just showed a, a number of ways not to do it. And so the, the moral of that little story is you don't fail until you quit. Then, then you fail. So don't quit. Uh, third step is 
you want to evaluate the results that you get from your actions. If you didn't get the result that you want, which was success, you got to adjust the, the strategy, go back to step two, take some more action. Or if you did, then you go out and celebrate, okay? And uh, I, I like to celebrate with ice cream, um, chocolate ice cream. And now I'm going to leave you with one more since we're all scientists and engineers and things like that, we all like equations. This one is the formula for happiness. Growth, improving yourself, plus contribution, being a service to others, volunteering, helping people out, contributing instead of taking, will give you fulfillment and happiness. And uh, with that, I rest my case and I'll open up for questions. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Goodman. This is amazing. Not only for the uh, personal side, but also for the technical side, business side. Really amazing. I'm pretty sure that quite some people, they are very interested in uh, either side of the story. So uh, please click raise hand and then you will be able to speak out. Okay, so while we're waiting, I have a quick question. When you mentioned about the shielding, you mostly mentioned about the electromagnetic shielding uh, or actually for cosmic rays or solar wind. <clears throat> yes, what would, what would you like to ask about it? No, uh, I'm oh, trying to say, okay. is that okay. for electromagnetic radiation shielding or? Or for the yes. for so, like uh, particles, charged so particles. The, so the, this shielding will work against uh, protons. Uh, it will work against uh, neutrons a, a little bit. It will work against uh, X rays, and it will work against uh, gamma rays. So it's uh, it uh, it. Uh, it provides protection against a, a wide range of RF frequencies. But I can't tell you what the numbers are. Yeah, I do have another question, but Patrick might want to say something. Patrick? Go ahead. Uh, please speak louder. Hello, Patrick. Uh, oh, here's some audio issue. Uh, welcome to speak up whenever you're ready. Uh, so let's see. Uh, anyone? Dan, do we want to say something? Um, let's see. Mr. Story, Ed, do you want something to say, share with us? No, not really. I've, I've just been enjoying the presentation. Thank you, uh, Dr. Goodman. You're welcome. Uh, Thanks. Ken, uh, 
this is this is swati uh, i i have a question for dr gurman if i may go ahead um, dr gurman thank you so much for you know sharing your uh, life experiences with us and such heartwarming stories very very uh, uh, you know inspirational um, so you when when you were talking about different projects and uh, programs that you have been working on in the last five years through SBIRs and other proposals, you mentioned about Red Heart by Design and uh, that caught my attention and, you know, I was just uh, curious to understand uh, what what are you uh, focusing on, on on that topic? Uh, are you uh, focusing on designing electronics that, that are Red Heart or uh, evaluating uh, you know, commercial uh, off-the-shelf components and and seeing how you can make them radiation susceptible, uh, resistant, and you know, mitigate the risk. Just curious, what what are you? What is your focus? Sure. So uh, the the process for radiation for red heart by design uh, is to perform the calculations for attenuation of uh, different photon energies uh, ranging from X-ray to gamma ray rays. Uh, also to look at linearly, linear energy transfer for neutrons, which uh, when they interact uh, with matter can cause uh, cascades of uh, sequential uh, radiation. Uh, you also have things like uh, electromagnetic pulse and electro uh, magnetic interference. And typically the approach that, that I developed and have used uh, is to take individual elements from the periodic table of elements and combine them into compounds mm -hmm. and then uh, use the design tools uh, that I created uh, to meet those particular uh, requirements. So uh, it is a very excellent question. Uh, so, so yes, um, the, a lot of what I learned was from a guy named Milton Ash when he was at TRW. Mm -hmm. And uh, he provided a course at UCLA Extension that I took that was called Nuclear Hardening for Electronic Systems. And uh, the class notes were the draft of the classical book by Messenger and Dr. Milton Ash, uh, George Messenger and Dr. Milton Ash, uh, called Nuclear Hardening for Electronic Systems. And uh, so, so I learned uh, you know, everything there was to, to know about hardening for electronics and doing all the calculations, uh, even how to protect yourself from uh, a one megaton nuclear blast if it exploded a mile above you and what you would need to protect yourself. That was our final exam question. So you had to show it all by calculation. So I, I used everything I learned in that class uh, and in that classic handbook to, to come up with the process and procedure for doing that type of design and, and analysis. And it's all requirements driven. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. That was very uh, useful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Swati. Well, uh, listen to your talk uh, shortly. Uh, Mr. Kilik, Arrow, you want to say something? 
Hi, uh, I will have some questions, but it is kind of specific, so I would like to use website. Thanks for your presentation. Oh. It was good. Thank you. Oh, so it's not a question, it's just a comment. Okay, Mike, go ahead. Yes, hi, brother, Mike. Um, you gave a very inspiring story. How is your son now? And also, how is your Did you ask how my son is now? Yes. So, uh, so a year later, thank you for asking that. That's very, very kind. Um, a, a year later, we flew in a specialist from Vanderbilt University, a guy named Dr. Fish. And uh, going into the surgery, uh, he, he knew that uh, there was an arrhythmia. He didn't know which one it was, so he didn't know if he would do a laser ablation or a cryogenic ablation. Well, when he started the procedure, he stuck a catheter up my son's aorta in the thigh and then came down through the neck. And when the two probes contacted the heart, it triggered the heart and the arrhythmia. And it turned out that my son had five extra pacemakers, but they were all short circuits. And so your heart is like a four cylinder engine. You know, it's got the spark plugs that fire the, the, uh, the different parts of the heart in order. Well, uh, when all these would trigger at the same time, it was just random noise. And so uh, we did get him on a heart monitor one, one time and we caught a seven minute event where his heart beat was 300 beats per minute. So, which is, uh, which is absolutely astonishing. Um, but uh, anyhow, 90 minutes after surgery, uh, the kid, the kid comes out, and that picture is him sitting up in bed playing on his uh, iPod. Ninety minutes after heart surgery, and he later went on to graduate from high school as the XO, so second in command uh, for his Marine Corps Junior ROTC program. So he made a complete and full recovery, and he's doing quite well at the university. Uh, these days. Thank you for asking. Yeah, well, that, that's good to hear. To hear. Um, also, I wanted to know, um, have you ever thought of um, approaching a publisher or turning your story into a movie? <laughs> no, it, it, it hasn't crossed my mind. I don't know if it would be that interesting, but uh, but I, but I am asked to be a, an inspirational speaker, uh, you know, every now and again. That's good. Um, I think that's all for now, Ken. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank I have one question to ask if there's any Josh, time. Josh, go ahead. Uh, this is, yeah, okay. Uh, do you have any experience with mosaics, like mosaic style receivers, where they uh, have multiple little receiving inputs and uh, how well they integrate. If you don't, oh, so, I mean, it's fine. Uh, so like a sparse aperture or? Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, 
in fact, the, the sparse aperture approach with optical, uh, there was a program at Air Force Research Laboratory called DOTS, which was a deployable optical telescope. And uh, that was also one of the strategies that was looked at back in the days of Strategic Defense Initiative Organization, the SDIO, prior to the start of the Missile Defense Agency. Uh, where one could combine, uh, you know, medium-sized apertures like one and a half meters to, to make uh, the equivalent of a 10-meter uh, telescope. And, and of course, that technique is done uh, in RF uh, all the time. Uh, so, so, yeah, I've, uh, I, I've seen that. I know, uh, I know that Raytheon uh, is fond of that style of receivers, the one out in uh, uh, Azusa, California. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Errol, I saw you, uh, your mic is on. So uh, are you going to say something more? Say hi to you. Oh, okay. Um, okay, so... maybe, maybe uh, Dr. Goodman can talk about you say a few things about the elimination of composites in hypersonic flight. Ah, <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit what I know. Um, the, the scrap rates for ceramic matrix composites are on the order of 90%, nine zero. And uh, it, it has to do with maintaining dimensional uh, tolerances, as well as the superposed uh, structural, uh, thermal, and, and acoustic uh, loads. There, there, are also, uh, there are also chemical reactions that go on between the ionized atmosphere uh, and the uh, composite. So, uh, yeah, anything that can be done to increase the, the fracture toughness of the composite will, will have an impact on its delamination uh, resistance. So uh, we've actually licensed some technology from NASA Glenn Research Center on uh, silicon carbide fabrics and, and treatments uh, for them. Uh, so that you don't get fiber pullout, you'll get fiber pullout from a from a sheath of boron nitride, but the boron nitride and the and the matrix uh, remain uh, intact. And one of the strategies uh, for ceramic matrix composites is to have a stress strain curve that behaves uh, very much like a a metal. So in, in, in ceramics, if you look at the stress strain curve, there's a, you know, you get to ultimate strength and, and you'll have a failure right there. And the curve is, you know, linear uh, with a slight linearity at the beginning of the stress strain curve. But uh, what you want is it for it to roll over and, uh, and fail gracefully. Uh, and again, looking at, at fracture toughness, a fracture toughness curve looks a lot like your stress strain curve, which gives you elastic modulus, but a lot of people get confused about that. 
what you want to happen is after the, the peak is for the, the, the plot to have a horizontal line where it maintains its strength or toughness. So like if you were to walk up to me on the street and hit me in the jaw and I would just stand there and smile at you, you would know I'm a pretty tough guy. <laughs> you would want to take a second swing. Right. So it's the same thing with the with the composites. You want them to maintain their their toughness under loading because, uh, you know, you can have a delamination early in your flight, but you want it to survive the rest of the flight. Right. Uh, and that's a key challenge. Uh, another key challenge for your ceramic matrix composites, of course, are the, the trajectory. So. Sometimes you're getting a lot of heat load because you're flying through the, the thick part, low altitude uh, part of a trajectory. But as you go to uh, higher altitudes, there's, there's less aero heating because there's just less uh, atmosphere. And so, uh, you know, the, you'll, you'll still have a thermal gradient though. And uh, so you, you only have a distortion in the material if you've got either a temperature rise, thermal gradient, uh, or some other uh, sort of uh, effect that's causing an elongation. So you can have that from physical loading as well. Does that answer your question well enough? Okay, uh, is there a thermal insulation outside the composite? Thermal but would you repeat that? Outside the composite. What is there a blade? Which Did you will, say is there will lower the temperatures and then it won't? Oh, okay, yeah. So, uh, the, the type of nano composite that I have made uh, has a, uh, a specially engineered uh, nano composite, and I, I call it a sublimation ablation uh, layer. So, initially, uh the, the material heats and charters and, uh, and it loses some of its mass into the shock stream. And that, that loss of mass takes some energy with it uh, and carries uh, heat away. So it's almost like an evaporative cooling effect uh, with, with water. Um, but uh, in, the, in the end phase, uh, the sublimation effect carries away all the mass and all the heat that you got from the bulk temperature rise associated with the aero heating, and you get a major uh, cooling effect. So, uh, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's only a few ways to skin the cat in, in hypersonics. Thank you. Further questions will be in, in the email. Okay. All right, great. Thank you. This is uh, really, truly amazing. Uh, uh, talk both inspiring and was also very um, uh, great insight into this uh, uh, technology and business. So let's welcome, uh, uh, you know, thank uh, Dr. Bill Goodman for this uh, wonderful uh, presentation and uh, hope we stay in touch and that you can come back with us again. Thank you so much, Dr. Goodman. Hey, hey, Ken, thank you and all the AIAA for uh, allowing me to be your speaker today. Um, very humbling. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Uh, great pleasure, honors, ours. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye bye now.
Yeah, bye bye. Stay in touch. Stay in touch. Yes, very sir. exciting. Yeah. All right. So our next speaker is uh, uh, Dr. Swati Sasena. Yeah, I'm pulling her uh, bio. So she is a technical project manager in ANSYS and is uh, an AIWA lifetime member, senior member. Is graduated from IIT at the very Kanpur. It's very uh, prestigious school. Uh, it's a master PhD in aerospace from Penn State University. Uh, uh, lead and research scientist and program manager in GE Global Research. He was also technical and project manager. Uh, well, he started there in 2018, and uh, still uh, and has remained there uh, for a great accomplishment. Her, her areas of interest uh, include, but not limited to machine learning and simulation, engineering design, MBSE, uh, PEDO, fluid mechanics, and aeroacoustic gas turbine design. She had 20, more than 20 publications and uh, two patents. And uh, she gave a talk, uh, two talks previously, all very popular and uh, highly uh, appreciated, a very good talk. And uh, today she's going to tell us more about uh, the new development uh, combining the, the power, uh, exam power ANSYS and the, the new uh, system engineering tools. So let's welcome uh, Dr. Swati Sasena. Thank you so much, Ken. Okay, let me start sharing my screen. Do you see it in presentation mode? Yes. <coughs> okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much everyone for joining this afternoon. And uh, uh, as Ken mentioned, I have been you know, fortunate enough to uh, speak to you on a couple of different topics in the past, and I always enjoy this uh, opportunity. So today I'm going to talk about the um, ANSYS technology stack, stack and solution uh, that we have for digital transformation journey that uh, we, uh, the primes, government, everyone is going through and how we can connect to the digital thread, uh, contribute to the model-based systems engineering uh, framework. Okay, so before I... Uh, start to talk about the solution itself and how we can contribute to the MBSE framework. I'd like to uh, do a quick recap of the ANSYS uh, technologies. Just give me one second. Okay. Uh, sorry, just uh, it's uh, the screen is frozen on my side. So just give me one second. I'll stop sharing and reshare. Okay. What happened here? Just give me. 
okay i think now it's it's fine i'll just start sharing it again okay sorry about that so yeah before going into the details of the mbsc solution let me do a quick recap of how ansys has evolved over the years from being a single physics high fidelity solution provider to this end to end solution engineering simulation uh, solution architect okay so if we just look at the um, at the physics based simulation offering here in the middle of this chart we see different physics that most of you know uh, about ansys so structures fluids electronics semiconductor optical design even photonics now expanding to photonics these are all the physics that ansys provides simulation you know uh, capabilities for now over last two decades i would say we have expanded it much more beyond the single uh, physics solutions now uh, with material intelligence platform you can basically have a gold source of truth for your material management across the entire digital thread or uh, the or the digital twin framework as well uh, on going from single component level physics to system level physics by creating reduced order models or surrogate models creating digital twins of the components as well as sim, uh, systems safety analysis and embedded software so this extends our capability to go beyond component level to system level simulation and then further expanding it to digital machine engineering with system of system simulations framework right so we have expanded to this uh, end of the spectrum on the simulation level and then to support this framework uh we have been investing heavily on in the last uh, over the last decade or so on uh, equipping our simulation platform to enable all of this and that's the simulation process and data management platform which is uh, which enables us to integrate all of this the component level simulation system and system of system level simulation onto a single platform and connect with the different platforms that are used in the entire mbse framework so that's 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 how it it goes from single physics to the system level or system to system of system level analysis and uh, i'll show you later how this all comes together when we talk about how we can contribute to the mbse framework over the last 20 years ansys has acquired more than 25 companies to enable this end to end solution and we partner with lot of uh, other companies that provide solutions different kinds of solutions for the mbsc tool chain uh, i will just like to highlight couple of acquisitions that we made recently this year uh, first of uh, first of them is the agi which is now part of ansys and it enabled the digital mission engineering aspect of uh, simulation for us and very very recently we acquired phoenix integration which enables a very key element of the mbse tool chain uh, its model center and mbse enabler 
to connect the simulation platform to different um, systems like PLM, SCM, and so on. It provides that unique framework with SysML models having vast, very, very, very niche capability to do that. And it can not only connect with ANSYS tools, it can connect with any uh, non-ANSYS tool for that matter to complete that uh, tool chain. Okay, so let, let's let's uh, take a step back and see how uh, DoD has been looking at the this entire product life cycle and what they have put together as their framework or strategy when it comes to data sharing between different stages of the product life cycle and maintaining the uh, the single source of truth or authoritative source of truth for data sharing and who all are these stakeholders so if we if we look on the left hand side of this chart and this is from the uh, digital engineering strategy that dod had uh, put together uh, you know i think in 2018 this is uh, this they came out with this so the stakeholders as you see it it's a wide range of persona that are involved and the stakeholders in different businesses, going from auditing, engineering, and non-engineering organizations, going from purchasing, test, and evaluation uh, on the business side, side, side as well. And all of them have their stakes as they go through this entire program lifecycle, right? Starting from the project requirements, to uh, maturing the uh, technology stack, uh, design analysis, testing for engineering. So the engineering organizations are, are involved in this step, uh, going, coming, getting requirements from the program offices, and then uh, the product testing, deployment, and then the sustainment phase as well. This is equally important because as we have seen from various uh, you know, examples, the cost of ownership is very, very important in this product lifecycle. It is, it is one of the, uh, sometimes the most expensive phase of the product. For example, if we take the F35 program, it has been, uh, there, there have been several challenges with its sustainment, uh, you know, uh, plan that they have put together for that and it's going to operate for several decades so this entire life cycle has to be uh, looked into from start to finish and with mbse approach what uh, what is being planned is uh, we have a single source of truth or or the data sharing between these different stages and enable a digital engineering framework so that it maintains traceability, interoperability, uh, ownership of the product, uh, product components, it's uh, testing, test data, materials, and everything can have a single connected framework. And that's, that's the digital thread that uh, we are talking about going from design requirements all the way to the product deployment and sustainment phase. So if we look at that uh, strategy, that vision that DOD has in place, and we then we look at the different levels of uh, 
uh, abstraction and fidelity, it has to be divided, broken down into to achieve that uh, uh, that digital end-to-end -end digital thread uh, framework. So we start, if you look at the warfighter, uh, the modeling and simulation pyramid, uh, start with the, at the mission level and then break it down to a system or system of system level, breaking it further to component level. So at the bottom of the pyramid, it's, um, it's obvious uh, if we just look at it from the simulation perspective, it becomes obvious that uh, we would have uh, this uh, uh, the, the high fidelity simulation buried into that the component level. But now what we can see is with different levels of offerings from ANSYS, how we align this with the DOD modeling and simulation pyramid. Right. So at the bottom of the pyramid, if I've, I've just outlined it in a way that it aligns with the component to system to architecture to the overall mission engineering approach. And as I mentioned before, uh, with the platform level uh, solutions, combining with the capabilities that our partners have. We cannot do it alone. It's not the end-to-end -end solution that we can provide alone, but with the right complement, complementary solutions, it contributes to the different stages of this pyramid, all the way from the component level physics to the uh, when the product is deployed in the field with digital twin approach, you can have the real-time data coming into the uh, into the digital twin and in enabling the digital twin with the physics-based simulation gives you that power of hybrid digital twin approach where you are not just relying on the field data, you also have um, knowledge coming from the physics-based models and you are able to fill in gaps that you have in your uh, field data. We can, Another way to look at it is to break it up into the different uh, uh, sets of uh, connectors and technology that is available with different ANSYS solutions. So in this case, it's a, it's a snapshot showing connectivity between the platform level solutions. The ANSYS, this is the mission engineering piece of it to the uh, simulation data process and data management platform, connecting it with the uh, multi-physics uh, solution that ANSYS has, the material management and the MBSE uh, models through uh, Phoenix Integration Model Center. And this framework, this connectivity can be, have, uh, can share and uh, connect to the entire ecosystem that's out there, uh, be it product lifecycle management tool, enterprise resource planning, tool data management, application lifecycle management, or IOT, or in-house uh, customer platforms. And this is only enabled with, with the partners, with our partners who we can you know, connect with for these different platforms. So if we 
look at how things have evolved over the last uh, three or four decades in the digital transformation journey and that we are all seeing as the uh, the primes, uh, the government, uh, they, we are all going through it. Now the newer and newer programs are moving towards this uh, digital engineering ecosystem approach. Uh, and what it has done over the years is it has witnessed tremendous increase in complexity in terms of data, uh, different connectivity that has to be maintained now, and then the volume. So as we have moved through this, uh, through this timeline, and we have been focusing a lot on the model-based systems engineering approach, things have become more complex. Uh, so we really need to look at how it should be done or how the tools connectivity or how the MBSC approach should be implemented so that it's scalable, it can be maintained for several decades. It's very, very open so that different platforms can connect to it, talk to each other, and we are able to maintain a uh, authoritative source of truth for data sharing between these platforms because that becomes very important. So how we do this? We do this through different uh, different models, different uh, comp comp uh, components, right? So going from very, very high fidelity, very detailed physics-based models to low fidelity reduced order models. Uh, behavioral models, which are which are uh, very important for uh, incorporating the, for example, the mission engineering effect, and also uh, having a platform for storing and managing data and information and simulation information to maintain that traceability. Right. So as I was uh, talking about the connected data and connected models that is in line with the current DE framework. So how the, the mission engineering really becomes important now. So previously, it uh, the way it if you look at the traditional V cycle, uh, we start with the pro program. Uh, project requirements, we break it down to system, subsystem, component level, we do the design and then we build it up and then do the testing and deployment. Now with the digital mission engineering approach, we are, uh, uh, what we can have is if you look at the all these uh, continuous threads across the entire product life cycle, starting from development, concept development to requirements, design, all the way to sustainment. All these threads continue through all these stages. They can't be broken. The component can't be just at the design phase. It has to be linked to the entire product life cycle because when it, for example, if you see at the sustainment side, um, if there is a failure occurring that is out of place or was not planned or was not expected, uh, it has to be traced back to this component design, to this design phase. 
it has to be uh, traced back to the CAD file that it, that was used to do the analysis, what scenarios were tested, what was not tested. If it is operating in an environment that it was never tested for, it that needs to be known to the on the sustainment side. And then we can do the root cause failure analysis and um, do predictive maintenance, do uh, much more informed maintenance for that uh, for that asset that's out there in the field so that this this approach basically uh, connects this entire product life cycle and incorporates the connection between component to system to system uh, system of systems to mission level uh, engineering Okay, so we looked at how uh, you know we would like to see the end-to-end MBSC framework implemented and how ANSYS uh, through its different capabilities at different levels going from component to the mission engineering ties into it. Now let's look at the uh, data sharing between different platforms within the uh, MBSE framework, because that's that's also the key uh, on you know how we would like to build our platform. So what we have seen over the years is uh, the trend that we have seen in the industry is uh, there is there is a model where we can have data stored within a single uh, platform, the PLM in this case, uh, it can be called as like a single vendor, single vendor monolithic approach, and then all the other platforms talk to talk to this uh, talk to the PLM system and get get the information and data that they need. Now the challenge with that is that approach is it becomes uh, very complex very quickly as we scale the system, and then it my it can sometimes lose that. Uh, ownership or connection between different uh, platforms if they don't if they should be owning that data but they they are not allowed to because there is only one platform which will store everything so it becomes a challenge to update and uh, trace the data as well sometimes so now what we have seen that um, the industry trend is moving from the single vendor single vendor monolithic approach to purpose built open and federated approach for data sharing between different platforms and this could be there could be two ways to do it every platform owns its own data and then it shares between each other through a federated uh, data bus or a data connection a secure data connection it could be one to one connectivity or one to many connect connectivity the other approach is to use a federated data bus and then everyone pushes or pulls in data to this data bus and connects to it uh, to get information that they need ANSYS supports both of these approaches uh, what what we have seen is this the federated approach is much more scalable it has uh, it promotes decentralization of data uh, transparency autonomy and also it supports the heterogeneous uh, databases both these approaches so uh, we support both 
and uh, but just wanted to give you an overview of what uh, how the data is being shared between different platforms as as we develop this uh, uh, this MBSC framework. Okay, so let's uh, spend few minutes in talking about the uh, the platform that Hensys has developed over the last few years to enable the MBSC toolchain. So it's called Ansys Minerva, and it's the uh, platform that enables us to manage simulation data, workflows, processes, document, visualization, collaboration, and communication all under one, one roof. So it, it can connect with both uh, Ansys and non-Ansys tools third-party tools, material management tools, different uh, different platforms, as we discussed, uh, PLM, ERP, supply chain platforms, different personas, different people can uh, view the engineering workflow or engineering requests on, that, on this platform, see what tasks have been assigned to them, complete them, check them off, and then push the data back into the platform. So this platform was developed uh, based on, it's, it's, so this is based on ARIS, which is, uh, which has the strength of a PLM platform. So this, this, uh, this SPDM platform has all the uh, capabilities that a PLM platform usually has, but this has been customized over the years to uh, be uh, uh, more agile and flexible and adaptable in implementing and storing simulation data, which PLM platform generally lacks. They are not uh, customized or uh, developed to for that kind of function functionality, while Minerva has been developed to complement what PLM systems usually have and be able to uh, store and manage simulation data, track processes, and be able to connect to the entire MBSC tool chain. So it can, it can connect to different PLM platforms. It's CAD agnostic, so it can be any, any uh, CAD platform can be used. Uh, it can connect to in-house and non-ANSYS COTS tools, open architecture to comply with all the DOD, digital engineering ecosystem standards, and we can exchange models, because that's also a challenge. How, uh, what if uh, you, know, you are not able to connect to a, to a model which, is, which was developed in-house? And so as long as they are in a standard format like FMU, FMI, we comply with that. And it can be connected into Minerva. So that also helps in uh, maintaining data connectivity and traceability. So we talked about the two approaches for linking data sources and communicating uh, or sharing data between different platforms. So this snap, these snapshots just show how Ansys Minerva links or behaves in both those cases. So the first one is the federated data bus approach, which we saw a couple of slides um, ago. So you have a, a data as a service uh, provider, which is talking to different 
platforms here, the PLM platform, the, uh, the requirements platform, the cloud, and ANSYS Minerva can plug right into this uh, federated data bus. The one-to-one -one connectivity uh, framework is also similar. Uh, Minerva can talk to the requirements platform, PLM platform, uh, the cloud and can share data with them while maintaining that authoritative source of truth. Okay, so that's um, it. So that's that's the infrastructure that that we have in place, and it it so it supports both the approaches I've mentioned before. So now, if we look at uh, focus a bit more on the federated data uh, exchange between different platforms. So you see different personas, different platforms will be talking to this and sharing, exchanging data with this, uh, with this, uh, with this approach, with this authoritative source of truth approach. And uh, the engineering requirements will be coming in, uh, operations, materials, system modeling, uh, supply chain, uh, everyone will be talking to uh, or sharing data and be pulling and pushing in data. So now where ANSYS comes into picture is this the modeling and simulation bucket here for uh, design, design verification, mission engineering, design analysis, doing all uh, the parametric analysis, trade-off studies and so on. So this is where ANSYS Minerva will plug in and it has all these features that I've talked about before and it can plug right into this, uh, into this, into this MBSE framework. So if we look at into a bit more detail uh, into the ANSYS Minerva platform, what uh, again the data is coming from different platforms and the modeling and simulation pieces where we link it to the data, the federated data. Now, once in this case, you're seeing this eCube is a third party uh, partner that we, um, that we work with for the you know, data as a service uh, provider. And they, they provide a connector between PLM or, or, or other platforms and ANSYS Minerva to share data. Now, ANSYS Minerva gives you this open collaboration architecture and framework where you can do multiple things. You can do all the analysis. You can do the run the modeling and simulation analysis. Different people can be provided different level of access to data within, within this platform to maintain uh, uh, security and uh, uh, you know, uh, if, if if the data needs to be accessed to a, only a certain set of people, it can maintain that confidentiality as well. The workflow, the dashboard to track the progress, uh, even post-processing, so you can analyze your simulation data and uh, it can connect with different non-ANSYS tools as well to enable that. The another... Uh, Capability that Minerva has is on top of your modeling and simulation analysis, it provides you tools uh, based on machine learning and AI models to further 
extract information, useful information from your analysis data. So you can uh, do a lot more uh, with your analysis data in this platform. And once you are satisfied with the results, once you are done with your trade studies, your design of experiment studies, you can push the information back into the integrated digital environment for further uh, those steps. And uh, the different, uh, uh, the, uh, the key here is open collaboration, uh, compliance with all the B standards and maintaining the data traceability and data continuity so that you're not losing any connection with where the data came from, what was done with the data, how it was compared with uh, test data and so on, and then uh, push it back into the digital thread. So I've talked to you about Ansys Manera so far, went over its features. So let's, let's uh, I hope the video will go through well. So let's view a short video. I'll uh, forward it and pause it to just to show you key features. So, so this is how the Minerva platform looks like the web-based web platform. You can, you log into it and then uh, you see what, tasks have been assigned to you. So track history of any project, then you go into that particular model, you have the entire model displayed in this platform itself. And it in this case, um, Katia was used to view the, as you see, it's now opening up, it was used to view the geometry. So you see, you don't have to go out of Minerva, you can view the geometry, you can launch Katia from right here and do whatever uh, cleanup or solver setup you have to do for that particular geometry. And then go and uh, do the analysis, look at the results. do the entire analysis, also share the results with the rest of the team and only select what you want to share. You can do the post-processing, upload the files, generate a report, update your uh, tasks, and also send a message to the, uh, the person, another person on the team if you want them to do further analysis. Okay. So this is all the data management and data analysis that, that can be done within, within Minerva. Just wanted to show you how the interface looks like and how you know, seamlessly you can go between different tasks, complete them, mark them complete, and then hand it off to the next person. Yes. Okay, so this was a this was a quick uh, you know, overview of Ansys Minerva, the simulation process and data management platform, which is a very very key enabler for uh, MBSE framework. And now I have two two examples that you know like like to show you to uh, give you an um, experience of how Ansys tools can connect with into the entire framework as we talked about in the PLM system, the requirements tool and uh, do the analysis and communicate and share the data. 
So this particular example is where we had to do a mission verification of a UAV. And the tools that were that were used in this particular use case were the Dassault tools, so no magic cameo for requirements, Jira for issuing uh, the ticket to for for Minerva to do the task, eCube as the data as a service provider for the federated data bus and the, the various ANSYS tools to do the. Uh, the mission analysis, high fidelity analysis, and uh, the parametric studies. Okay, so in this example, what we'll see is um, how the digital thread uh, is built from different, you know, different components, getting the requirements, the mission operation needs, and then how those are uh, trickled down into design modification along with analysis and verification. And then how we update the model attributes and push it back. It also demo demonstrates the open collaborative infrastructure. As you can see, we're linking different uh, tools coming from different vendors and then how they all come together and can you know, talk to each other and share data. So in this case, we'll not be showing the connectivity into the into CAD or PLM, but this can be done as I have mentioned earlier, and even extending it to material database and other databases, and they can be similarly implemented. So the the thread, the digital thread environment that's implemented here is we have the uh, ANSYS Minerva platform and within that ANSYS model center platform to uh, create the MBSE model. Those are linked with the ANSYS simulation tools, mechanical uh, fluids, also electromagnetics, and the ANSYS AGI SDK for mission engineering planning. So the CAD uh, connects with the PLM as well. And in this case, eCube is being used as the data connector. And Minerva provides you that platform to do all this analysis, look at the data model, do the post-processing and uh, simulation data management as well. So uh, all these enablers are, are provided with this entire connectivity and this framework. And uh, it can be uh, post-processed, as I, as I mentioned before. So eCube is, is facilitating the communication. And then all the analysis is done within Minerva. And then the data is pushed back to see this bidirectional connectivity here. So let's look at the use case a bit uh, in detail. So as you see, this is a UAV you know, that has been deployed. And when uh, it was... Uh, going through or performing its you know, mission, it was seen that there was the deflection on its wings was higher than uh, expected uh, for certain mission maneuvers, right? So that was the, that was the challenge. So what, and, and this is a mission effect. So what was done is uh, we had to do a new mission verification configuration. So basically we took the data coming out of the mission requirements for that particular UAV, uh, selected the configurations where it was failing, where it was seeing higher deflection than expected, 
and then did the entire mission verification on the new configuration and uh, uh, by doing the detailed analysis detailed stress analysis on the uav itself under those conditions under those maneuvers see how the deflection is being um, you know generated because of those maneuvers created a reduced order model and then plugged it back into the mission level engineering uh, simulation to make sure now with the new configuration the uav is able to meet the deflection requirements so this is the workflow so the requirements are coming from cameo in this case and what uh, it does it creates a jira ticket for verification so jira is the ticket uh, issuer that's being used so that's the ticketing system cameo creates the ticket jira uh, through jira as soon as the ticket is created it uh, uh, starts this ecube thread uh, as a data as a service uh, you know provider to send this message into minerva that this ticket has been generated this is what you have to do and this is the data you will need all the simulation files cad scripts and the the analysis um, uh, description is all those are passed into minerva at this stage um, minerva sends uh, the the required uh, task lists to its program to its engineers to the analysts who have access to that particular project then the model center is used to orchestrate this analysis so it uh, creates the task list it creates those models that have that needs to be analyzed so answers various answers high fidelity tools cfd fluids structural analysis mission analysis they got they get invoked the analysis is performed by the person who has been assigned those uh, tasks it sends uh, a ticket back through jira that the task has been completed and then the information is updated within cameo so that's that's the overall workflow that we are going to see here okay so if we look at the uh, the verification analysis workflow in and related to the system you know we we engineering uh, systems engineering diagram here we are looking at the mission analysis from a mbse perspective reviewing the mission definition reviewing verification configuration then we do the analysis setup verify the component behavior so that's what we are doing here with with the detailed design analysis we are updating the mission and then uh, completing the sign off and updating the mbs model so this entire loop is completed and then the uh, the mission and the the mbs model is update, updated at the end as well okay so uh, we'll just break it up into two parts the this uh, this uh, uav demo 
So the first part will show you how the MBSC uh, connection with SPDM, which is Minerva in this case, is performed through Jira and eCube. So it's Cameo eCube Jira integration. So that's the gray box you have um, here. And then the second demo shows the detailed analysis part. So this is all inside Minerva. Once we get inside Minerva, what we do? Uh, so the Minerva workflow, okay? So the first part is uh, showing the connectivity between these three tools, Cameo, Jira, and Minerva, and through eCube as the data sharing um, provider. Okay, so now we are in Cameo. Right, so we get all the requirements. You can see the UAV overall requirements here. So the maximum deflection that's allowed on its wingtips, maximum stress, uh, the first vibration frequency. So everything in terms of the requirements is available within, within Cameo in this case. Now we are changing the altitude value for the mission here. So the mission requirements are modified. If to do the wing structural reliability analysis, that's, that's something that has been triggered by the system because now the mission requirements have been changed. And then the new CAD model for the mission analysis is generated. So you see the part file that's been updated here details of what needs to be done. So the analysis that needs to be done by the engineering team, you commit the changes to the server. So with an add comments, what, what changes have been made. Now, as soon as you commit these changes to the server, uh, a Jira ticket gets issued. And then through eCube, you see this now, Jira task URL is created. And now we are into Jira and looking at the tasks that have been created and now assigned to be sent to uh, Minerva. Now we are into Minerva. The engineer gets notified. It looks at the task list. It looks at what, what kind of analysis needs to be done. CFD analysis, structure analysis, and so on. Everything gets done. Now it's being sent back to Jira by uh, once, once the engineer completes the analysis, the ticket gets generated back in Jira. Now we are back into Cameo and we are updating the results here. So all these analysis results are now made available within Cameo. You can see the value of the tip deflection here, the results that are that came out of the analysis, all these values are being updated. The tip deflection value updated in the MBSC model for complying with the new mission requirements. So completing the analysis done, you mark this as done and you update your MBSC model. Right, so you just saw the uh, the workflow coming out of Cameo 
through Jira, through eCube to Minerva and back. Now let's look at what, what goes on within Minerva. When once the ticket is issued and the engineering team is notified for the analysis, what, what can we do within Minerva? So the workflow request gets generated, the status tracking, sign off, data analysis, results visualization and reporting, all this can be done within Minerva. And this data is stored, the simulation data is stored within Minerva as well. So let's look through this workflow real quick. So now we are we are within Minerva. So let me let me pause here and explain you how this works. So you see different personas here: program managers, mission analysts, CFD analysts, analysts, and so on. So they come into picture at different stages of this. Uh, uh, mission task, right? So once the program manager has reviewed the tasks that have been generated, has reviewed the requirements, it then signs it off and passes it off to its team. Different persona, they will have uh, access to different level of information. They do their own analysis, check it off, sign it off, then the mission analyst uh, reviews the, the results, um, approves it, and then the program manager reviews and signs off. So everyone has uh, their own responsibility, has been assigned different tasks. They can collaborate on the same platform. It's decentralized. They don't have to be at the same location. They are able to see the same set of instructions and data. So there is no miscommunication or uh, repeating or or you know uh, of tasks that that are uh, that are going on. So if I just play this again, so we're starting with the reviewing the analysis requirements for this UAV. Now everyone is assigned the data. The engineer goes on and logs into Minerva, looks at its request, reviews the tasks. Now they are looking at the CAD file that's supposed to be used for this analysis. Submitting requests for the, uh, the team member. Once the simulation is done, you can view the simulation report. These are all the output files that are generated from different ANSYS tools. So everything can be seen in the same platform. All these results are being updated. They check if the maximum wing tip deflection is within the limit or not. The results are updated. Our output files are uh, you know, saved and the task is marked complete. So this is all that happens within Minerva. So now, now we have seen the two pieces of the demo. One, how the connectivity uh, links between different tools. And then when they're within Minerva, how the analysis is performed. The second example I want to show is a CubeSat performance analysis, which also shows the mission engineering aspect of uh, uh, simulation integrating with non-ANSYS tools. So this one uses uh, MathWorks, MATLAB for doing most of the analysis, and then it connect, connects back to NoMagic for updating the, uh, updating the requirements. 
and the results. Okay, so in this case, uh, this is the workflow. So we have the requirements coming from uh, CubeSat performance there. It has to meet certain payload requirements. It has to meet certain mission requirements that the, uh, the satellite is supposed to do. So a SysML-based model is created, created for, for those requirements. And then these performance requirements, for example, it has to, uh, there is a, a battery discharge limit that's set during the mission. The battery level should not go beyond a certain level. How the sun is going to charge and discharge battery at different um, during at different times during the day how much data can cubesat process or send to the ground station without without losing uh, charge on it on its batteries beyond that minimal level so all those performance requirements are set then the satellite trajectory and the data analysis data uh, that needs to be transferred for further analysis is gathered and transferred to through uh, AGI SDK into model center and MPSC analyzer. There the MATLAB models are run to do the analysis, perform engineering analysis, and even data sheets like Excel sheets can be linked. So it doesn't have to be just a high fidelity analysis or uh, engineering analysis data could be stored and used in any data format. Then the mission sign off and uh, updating the MBSE model as we have seen in the previous example. So let's look at the quick demo how this is done in. Uh... So now we are starting with the mission, right? So CubeSat collects data and download it to the ground station. So this is this is the trajectory of the satellite. We're coming into magic draw now, looking at the requirements, the vehicle dynamics, reviewing mission requirements, battery level margin. This is something that's important for for this mission success. Satellite trajectory data and access. So all these, uh, in all this information is is available within Magic Draw. Now the SysML models are created and passed on to the uh, MATLAB scripts via Model Center to do this analysis and update the models. So if I go back a second and pause here, this is this is the analysis part where it, it does this, goes through this engineering analysis and then sends it back, updates the model, sends it back to the, uh, the requirements tool. So you are solving all the uh, vehicle performance metrics that have been uh, that have been assigned and looking at the uh, at the behavior of the vehicle now you can look at the different scenarios within stk and make sure that the mission will be it meets all the mission requirements the mission trajectory is uh, being updated as well 
and and there is a lot you can do in terms of the uh, you know just visualizing the data this is the energy level within the battery uh, how the sun is going to um, charge and discharge so that cycle the state of the sun the energy how is it going to be consumed what would be the optimal way of using the the satellite for its mission so all those requirements are being updated and this is uh, you know, another example of how different tools can be connected together to uh, do the dig digital mission engineering analysis. Okay. So I think once that's, you know, it's satisfied that it will meet the requirements, you check that off in the, um, on your requirements uh, system and that data connectivity is still there. You can go back and trace how the models were run and what parameters were used. So we looked at two examples, two MBSE workflows. This is uh, just representative of what, what's, you know, what's possible. It can get much more complex. You can do a lot of, lot of other things with a lot of other kind of analysis with this um, open architecture and collaborative framework. So we looked at the Cameo, Jira, Ecube, Ansys workflow, looked at the, uh, the Cameo model center, MATLAB, Excel sheet workflow connected through uh, AGI SDK and uh, how the mission uh, analysis can be, <coughs> excuse me, integrated as well. So just want to emphasize once again that with uh, with all the investment that's you know happening with on developing tools and technologies within Ansys to enable this MBSE framework, this has been uh, you know very very important for for us and how we can expand from component to system to system of level, uh, you know for providing that anti, uh, that entire end-to-end -end simulation uh, platform and uh, with as i mentioned with recent acquisition of agi and uh, phoenix integration we now have further expanded the capability to uh, do this kind of integration with different platforms so that's that's something that's on our you know long-term technology strategy more mbse is is very key, is, a, is a key element and uh, we have seen from you know from it push from DOD and with different primes as well. So I'm sure it's like important for a lot of applications that are out there. Uh, I was able to go through two examples today, but they are, we are working with several, several of our customers on implementing these kind of you know, different tool chains for their specific applications. So, you know, with that, uh, I'd be happy to take any take any questions or provide you any further information on any of uh, a specific topic that you would be interested in. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you, uh, Dr. Sasena. This is wonderful. There's so many things so exciting and uh, catching the new trend. Uh, so everyone, um, you are all unmuted, so if you want to ask a question, you can uh, raise hand uh, or just speak out. Uh, well, let me see. There's, uh, 
Oh, they all say thank you. Uh, good talk. Um, while we're waiting for people for questions,